X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Tuesday, May 4th. Today, back in the day in 1886, the Haymarket Massacre took the lives of seven police officers and at least four civilians in Chicago. After the Civil War, industrial centers in the Midwest and North began to see a boom of migrant labor forces. These migrants worked for about 60 hours a week at $1.50 a day. Labor organizers decided in 1886 that May 1st would be the date at which the eight-hour work week would be standardized nationwide. Laborers across the country, as many as half a million, held a general strike when their demands weren't met. Chicago was the center of this movement. On May 3rd, outside of the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company plant, striking laborers rushed strike breakers and were fired at by police officers. The next day at Haymarket Square, a peaceful demonstration of somewhere between 600 and 3,000 people gathered to listen to speeches. At 10.30 p.m., police officers descended on the crowd to disperse them. A homemade bomb was thrown at the advancing policeman and killed an officer. The police proceeded to fire on the crowd, killing four and wounding as many as 70. Six other police officers died, though it is disputed whether or not they were killed by protesters or by friendly fire. This remains the single most deadly incident in the history of the Chicago Police Department and led to a nationwide Red Scare and labor union clampdown. Four labor leaders were executed for their alleged involvement in the bombing. Today, back in the day in 1970, the Ohio National Guard opened fire on students protesting the war at Kent State University. By 1970, the Vietnam War had been dragging on under three presidential administrations. Richard Nixon had campaigned in 1968 on the promise of ending the war, but failed to deliver. In 1969, Nixon instituted the first draft lottery since World War II. Across the country, anti-war protests began increasing in number and intensity, especially on college campuses. Kent State had seen anti-war protests since 1966. On May 1, 1970, 500 students at Kent State staged a protest in response to the involvement of the U.S. military in Cambodia. Tensions were high following this protest as all through, through downtown Kent, students clashed with police and local business owners. Rumors of bomb threats, arson plots, and a plan to spike the town's water with LSD spread to city officials, and the Ohio Army National Guard was called in. On May 2nd, the ROTC recruitment building on campus was burned down. On the 4th, 2,000 people gathered at the university. The demonstration was quickly interrupted by National Guardsmen. Protesters and guardsmen clashed with protesters throwing rocks and the National Guard using tear gas to disperse the crowd. Eventually, the National Guard advanced with guns and drove the students back, following them across campus. Just after noon, a sergeant fired on the crowd of students, prompting the other guardsmen to do the same. In all, four students were killed and nine were wounded. Though the immediate public reaction blamed the students for the incident, is now largely recognized as a heinous suppression of free speech. Today, back in the day in 1923, 
Portland's first public radio station was launched. Benson Polytechnic High School licensed their radio station KIFF in March of 1923. They were cleared to operate with 200 watts at 834 kilocycles. The high school purchased its equipment from Stubby Electric for $1,800. The first broadcast began on May 4, 1923 at 9.30 p.m. KIFF changed to KBPS in 1930, and the station began broadcasting at 14.50 a.m. in 1941, where it remains today. It's likely that KBPS is the longest-running high school radio station in the country. Some reports say that the station could be heard as far away as New Zealand during nighttime winter broadcasts. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. City Council began work on Portland's latest budget. Mayor Ted Wheeler released a $5.7 billion budget proposal last Thursday. Currently, the city is facing a $20 million shortfall due to the pandemic. But most city bureaus will ultimately see their net budgets grow due to money Portland received from the Federal American Rescue Plan. The bureau facing the largest cuts will be the Portland Police. In the long run, the bureau's funds would be cut by $3 million by reducing overtime, materials costs, and already vacant positions. But in the short term, Mayor Wheeler proposed extra funds for the police to address a major staffing shortage. The proposed budget also includes $4 million for the new Community Police Oversight Board and $1 million for Portland Street Response. Portland Parks and Rec will get the largest increase in funds. The $12 million increase is thanks to a tax levy passed by voters last November. After that, $8.6 million will go to the Portland Housing Bureau and the Joint Office of Homeless Services. Finally, the mayor has proposed millions in federal dollars for economic recovery and downtown revitalization. City Council is holding a work session on the proposal and a public hearing on the budget will be held tomorrow, Wednesday, May 5th. The final final budget will be read on May 13th. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 540 new coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total case count to 186,877. They also reported one new death. The total death toll is now 2,502. Oregon has now administered over 3 million vaccine doses. That's 82% of the total doses the state has received. The Timbers and Thorns have asked to be exempt from increased COVID restrictions. On Monday afternoon, representatives from Portland's two soccer teams asked Governor Brown to keep Providence Park open at 15% capacity. That means that a reduced number of fans could still show up to support their hometown teams. The request comes right before the team's two largest and most important events of the season. On Saturday, the Thorns will participate in the NWSL Challenge Cup Championship. And on Sunday, the Timbers will face off against the Seattle Sounders in a highly anticipated rivalry match. The Thorns were the first sports team in Oregon to host a large-scale match in over a year. On April 9th, they hosted 4,000 masked 
and distanced fans for their match against Kansas City. The Thorns and Timbers have had four similar matches since. So far, none of them have led to a COVID outbreak. Mike Golub, the president of the Thorns and the Timbers, emphasized that Oregon is the only state restricting outdoor sports. Golub said, quote, We know that an increasingly large number of people are ready to come back with protocols in place and celebrate our city and our teams that res- represent our city. The Grand Ronde tribes withdrew from the Willamette Falls Trust. The Willamette Falls Trust is the nonprofit in charge of the Willamette Falls Legacy Project. The project is supposed to redevelop and restore a former industrial paper mill in a way that honors local tribes' enduring relationship with the site. The Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde own the Blue Heron Mill property, which is central to the project. They managed to buy the property back in 2019 after the land had been lost in a historic treaty. Tensions first arose between the Grand Ronde tribes and the Willamette Falls Trust last summer. Grand Ronde Chairwoman Cheryl Kennedy specifically cited a presentation by the Trust that used colonial language and ignored tribal perspectives on the area's history. The Trust issued a formal apology to the Grand Ronde tribes in July. Now, Grand Ronde leaders are saying that this pattern of disrespect has continued. In a letter, they wrote that they were barred from project updates after refusing to sign a confidentiality agreement. Additionally, leaders wrote, quote, The Trust regularly sends out public communications mentioning the tribe's work at Willamette Falls without prior notice, permission, or coordination. However, when the tribe provides the Trust with important studies or information, That information is not given due consideration and is often ignored or dismissed. Finally, they say that the tribe's departure is due to a lack of results. The project is entering its seventh year, although it is still in the planning stage. Representatives for the trust say that the confidentiality agreement is necessary for the group to be legally considered a nonprofit. So far, Grand Ronde leaders are the only ones who refuse to sign the agreement. Both groups say they are open to rebuilding a relationship in the future, but not without a major discussion and clarification of roles. Currently, Grand Ronde leadership will focus their attention on the design and construction of a river walk in the area. The Willamette Falls Legacy Project was envisioned as a healing effort between the area's many indigenous tribes and other Clackamas County residents. But at least for now, it embodies centuries of fraught relationships between tribes, colonial settlers, and nature. Representative Mike Neerman has been criminally charged for letting far-right extremists into the Oregon Capitol. On December 21st, Neerman purposely left a door to the Capitol building open, letting far-right protesters storm the statehouse. At least three people who participated in this protest later went on to attack the federal capitol on January 6th. After a months-long investigation by state police, Neerman has been charged with official misconduct and criminal trespassing. House Speaker Tina Kotek and House Majority Leader Barbara Smith-Warner have both called for Neerman's resignation. A group of Democratic lawmakers also filed a formal complaint against him in January. As committees split evenly along party lines, will decide whether Neerman violated workplace rules. If so, 
he could face anything from required counseling to expulsion from the house. Nearman is required to appear in court on May 11th. Until then, Nearman has been removed from all of his former legislative committees. Oregon is staring down a drought this summer. As May begins, more than three-fourths of Oregon is already in some stage of drought. That's according to the National Weather Service's Climate Prediction Center. Oregon had less rain than usual in March and April, and the unseasonably warm weather shrank snowpack sizes. The worst of it is in Klamath County in southwestern Oregon. The county has already declared a drought emergency. Three Klamath Basin tribes, along with conservationists and fishing groups, urgently called for federal funds to address the problem. The U.S. Department of the Interior has promised an all-hands-on-deck approach to drought management in the West. But what that actually means has yet to be seen. Good news. The winners of the Oregon Book Awards were announced on Sunday. As part of a special broadcast of the Archive Project on OPB, Literary Arts announced 11 Oregon Book Award winners. The Great Offshore Grounds by Vanessa Veselka won for fiction, while The Fire is Upon Us by Nicholas Bukala took nonfiction. Hope of Stones by Anna Elkins was honored for poetry, and Yellow Bird by Sierra Crane Murdoch won for creative nonfiction. Additionally, historical and science fiction author Molly Gloss took home the C.E.S. Wood Distinguished Writer Award. Over the past few months, X-Ray and the Morning Hosts have spoken with several Oregon Book Award winners and nominees. You can listen back to our interviews with Vanessa Veselka and Nicholas Bukala on our website. Plus, you can look forward to our interview with Sierra Crane Murdoch soon. And you can always pick up one of the winner's books at your favorite independent bookstore. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, we'll hear from Alex Zielinski, who spoke with X-Ray hosts DJ Ambush and Morgan Jones about the recent police shooting of Robert Delgado, as well as the history of the PPB and their approach to mental health situations. On the morning of April 16th, Portland police responded to a 911 call about a man with a gun in Lentz Park. Within four minutes of the PPB's arrival on the scene, that man was shot and killed by an officer. Robert Delgado was his name, and the weapon he was wielding, it turns out, was a toy gun. Now Delgado's family is calling for a special investigation into his death. Today, we're joined by Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury. According to reports from the PPB, the officer who shot Delgado shot him from 90 feet away. And as we said earlier, it was within four minutes of PPB arriving on the scene. Based on your reporting, does it seem like the action taken by the officer was warranted? Well, it's uh, hard to say. I mean, as someone who, as a member of the public, I feel like um, that's not how I want the police responding to someone who seems to be in crisis. Um, I think there's a lot of background and context that's important um, in talking about these kinds of incidents, specifically because um, Portland is, is since 2012 has been in a um, under a, a federal settlement agreement with the Department of Justice um, for the way, specifically for the way it, police have treated people with mm. perceived or real mental illness. So, uh, you know, long story short, um, leading up to 2012, 
or in 2012, the Department of Justice sued the city um, because its police, the Portland police, had had records of disproportionately uh, killing and injuring using force against people with uh, mental illness. Um, they, they came in uh, and investigated the city right after a number of um, of police interactions with people who were in some kind of mental health crisis right. were killed and by police and um, and that settlement agreement has kind of brought a lot of promises um, to the city's uh, the, or the city's promise that it's going to improve the way that interacts interacts with people with mental illness, improving training and policies for um, the Portland Police Bureau and its officers and um, an oversight that kind of goes along with it. And I think looking at this recent shooting, it's important to know that there has been all of this kind of um, this training and intention going into these interactions that are supposedly supposed to keep um, officers from using force, especially so quickly within, you know, four minutes, um, deadly force, uh, using that so quickly, it seems, you know, problematic and not really in line with the way that officers have been trained. Um, But it does speak to the trend of in the past, you know, um, 10 years, basically, since the settlement agreement has been in place in Portland, the number of people who have been killed by police who have some kind of mental health um, issue or were in crisis when they were killed, that number has uh, has increased and that number has gone up in um, regularity since it was an intervention, which really, you know, shows that the outcome of this federal uh, investigation didn't really seem to, to improve the, um, the problem. Mm. So according to reports released by PPB, Delgado was described as acting like James Bond or a cowboy, but not pointing his gun at anyone. And his gun, as it turns out, was a replica equipped with an orange painted tip. This description doesn't sound altogether threatening, does it? Yeah, it doesn't. And it's tricky because the only information that we have, um, that the public has from PPB kind of leading up to their decision to shoot um, is audio from their kind of radio, police radio, um, talking to each other about what's going on. And uh, that was released just a few days after um, the shooting, which is pretty remarkable. Usually you don't get much information or data kind of until much later. Uh, But it explains, you know, in those, those radio clips, you can hear officers saying, okay, we're on the scene, you know, this guy looks like uh, he's, you know, he's not really responding to us. He's not really compliant to our orders. But it, at no point do they mention that he has a gun or that they see a gun on him. Um, they also, it, it sounds like, according to, you know, the the radio conversations, which is kind of all, um, you know, all, all we know, we don't really know what they visually saw. Portland police don't wear body cams. Um, and they also don't, you know, there's no other way to like visually capture kind of what they were seeing. Um, maybe they saw a gun, but didn't say anything. Uh, but it sounds like they were told by other witnesses or others on the scene um, that, oh, we think that guy has a gun. And yeah, that, that, that man has a gun. 
Um, and so with that knowledge, uh, that's, that was the thinking of, of shooting him. They, they're never, I mean, and they might have seen, the officers might have seen a gun with, you mm-hmm. know, their own eyes. It just was never stated um, over radio, which, you know, I'm not, um, I don't know kind of what's the protocol there and if that's normal or not. Um, but it is a little, um, it's interesting knowing that there was just a lot of kind of descriptions about this man probably having a gun, um, but maybe never actually seeing it and just kind of visualizing it in their heads because, you know, I think at one point an officer says, maybe we think he might have it in his back pocket, like you can't see anything. Right. Um, and so it's kind of this idea of a gun <laughs> um, that might have um, encouraged Officer uh, Zachary DeLong to, to pull the trigger. And the idea of a gun was obviously, yeah, enough, which is wild. Um, in the reports, it's explained that it's not until after Delgado was shot that officers on the scene make a plan to get a ballistic shield to approach Delgado. Uh, does it seem like it should have been like their first move to plan to approach him with the shield? You know what I'm saying? Oh, the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does seem um, it seems a little clunky the rollout itself of you know not kind of showing up prepared for someone who has a a gun, and you know in the past we've seen when they're shooting things like this happen, um, kind of immediately after. Uh, officers shoot, their first priority um, is rendering aid to the person that they shot. Um, and in this situation, since they weren't sure if he was still alive and still maybe had a gun, they really slowed down that process. I don't know the exact number of minutes or kind of the delay, but they focused a lot on getting, yeah, like you said, a shield and getting kind of um, some kind of barricade in place in case he was going to, you know, sit up and shoot them uh, instead of kind of immediately rushing and trying to, to save his life and resuscitate him. Um, I it, it does, it, yeah, it, it is it is interesting and curious if that's kind of protocol or if there was a step missed in planning mm. for that. Um, there's still a lot of question marks that we're waiting to hear and it, it kind of the next um, the next release of information will probably come after a grand jury um, a county grand jury decides whether or not the officer involved in this case is was right to, to shoot um, Delgado and if not um, if the officer will face criminal charges and in the past it's pretty rare for mm-hmm. a grand jury to to find an officer um, to, you know, indict or uh, charge an officer for uh, shooting a member of the public. Um, evidence is, you know, that presented to a grand jury usually comes in uh, straight from the, from the police bureau itself <laughs> and is very like, this is, you know, this is standard. This is how, you know, this man was, was, afraid from his life or for his life and so this is how he he treated the situation so anyways after that ruling is made is when more investigative information will be released to the public uh, because right now it's it's tied up in uh, in court 
Yeah. So ultimately, this is a conversation about, you know, tra- proper training and procedure. You know, training, training, training. We got to throw more money at, at the training. Um, I see similarities in this and uh, some of the situations we've seen played out in video where uh, a person is shot by law enforcement and then law enforcement is yelling commands at them afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're shot and it's like, comply. Uh, put your hands behind your like, turn around turn around you shot roll this over right so in this right. situation you've you shot this man and now let's go get the shield to approach him and protect yeah. ourselves after you've you've shot him it's like uh, yeah instead of realizing that there's a clear power dynamic since you are the ones with the, <laughs> with the firearms pointed at someone right now right yeah. exactly last Friday Delgado's family called on the state on the state's governor and attorney general to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate Delgado's death. From your understanding of the incident, is there reason to support this demand? Um, I think there's precedent kind of based on um, the, you know, what we, the most recent example of a special investigator, um, a special prosecutor investigating a case uh, is in um, Minneapolis case of Derek Chauvin, uh, the Attorney General of Minnesota at the time last year appointed a special prosecutor to investigate that case, and we saw where that ended up last week. Um, and so I think using that as a as a precedent to say, hey, that well, I mean, first of all, Portland Police has a, a pattern and practice of disproportionately shooting people in mental health crises, um, we need to do something different than what's been going on for the past almost decade with federal intervention. Let's let's bring in an independent investigator. Um, I, I think that's kind of their argument in, in bringing and making this call. Um, I've you know, spoken to the Attorney General's office and they're not going to independently um, you know, sign on to that without uh, a green light from the local district attorney's office, um, which also is, you know, its own precedent as well. The Multnomah district, Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt was elected as a um, kind of a reform uh, um, prosecutor in some ways, and he, in his, um, in his election and his in his. You know, campaign promises. He's spoken a lot about the importance of independent investigation into police uh, misconduct and shootings. I mean, it is um, it's always good to remember that right now in Portland and in, in most uh, or in a lot of cities in the U.S., when things like this happen, the people who investigate these uh, officer shootings are officers themselves and detectives right. that work. You know, in the same maybe same building or same precinct as the officer that that shot someone, and so there is, you know, there there is a certain level of um, of oddness about that protocol, and and so I think the district attorney um, he hasn't said whether or not that's something he wants to see happen, um, since it's really on him and his office when it comes to deciding how to. Um, uh, you know, investigate mm-hmm. and charge or not charge uh, the officer involved in this um, in this shooting. So, uh, 
you know, it hasn't happened before in Portland. There hasn't been a, a you know, there hasn't been a, a special prosecutor assigned to mm-hmm. these kind of investigations, but because of kind of the politics um, of who's in the district attorney's office and of the moment of time um, surrounding, uh, yeah, surrounding, you know, the, the Chauvin hearing or Chauvin right. makes sense in some ways to, to bring this to attention. One last question. Have um, Governor Kate Brown or Oregon's Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum made any comment on the case yet? Um, not publicly. Uh, like I, I mentioned, I, I spoke with uh, Ellen Rosenblum's office and they're, uh, they're deferring to uh, the district attorney, Mike Schmidt, and his decision what to do with this case because a bit closer to it and both support and back kind of whatever he um whatever he decides but <laughs> no we haven't heard anything from uh any public statement really from either mm. um we've heard more from local officials which is more common um but yeah nothing at the state level interesting alex thank you so much for joining us this morning Thanks for having me. Thanks to Alex for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.